This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We are recording this episode on November 23rd, 2014. My name is Zach. And I am Andy. This is episode number 85, where we are discussing Peter Yates' 1983 sci-fi fantasy adventure film, Crawl, released by Columbia Pictures, and starring Ken Marshall, Lizette Anthony, Freddie Jones, and a very young Liam Neeson. Andy, would you please read the plot synopsis? On the planet of Crawl... An evil creature known as the Beast, very clever, it's a good name, uh, decimates the world's armies and kidnaps the lovely Princess Lisa, who is destined to become queen. The brave Prince Coolwin leads a motley crew of warriors to rescue his beloved princess. However, before he can face the Beast, Coolwin must locate a mystical weapon known as the Glaive, which was really hard to do, which he can use to slay the hideous Beast. So that's Kroll. I know you love this movie. Since when do we read plot synopsis with personal commentary peppered <laughs> in throughout? Yes, I do have a lot of affection for Kroll. It should be mentioned that Kroll is an example of many films during the 80s which attempts to capitalize on the success of Star Wars I would even argue Conan the Barbarian, not necessarily the film because it didn't come out. Just the idea. Yes, definitely the original source. Lord of the Rings and I would even I would say Robin Hood as well are definitely apparent in their influence. And I don't think the movie in any way attempts to conceal that mimicry. Um but I do believe Peter Yates does approach the similar material of those films from a very different perspective than what George Lucas did or what John Milius did or anybody that was making, I guess, memorable science fiction and fantasy films during that period. Yeah, yeah, and I think the the biggest thing is, is that you can tell, like, say, Star Wars and Conan the Barbarian were, like, labors of love for these filmmakers. Or <laughs> Peter Hates is probably thinking, what the hell am I doing making this movie? Well, I don't know if you got a chance to check out the making of documentary. No, I know you sent it to me, but I didn't get around to it. Yeah, and in that documentary, he seems very passionate about what he's doing. He's very committed to making a film, as he says, that is very beautiful. 
And I, I do think that that's important because when you watch Crawl for a action adventure film, it doesn't really t- attempt to do a lot to satisfy the blockbuster cliches. It takes them and it kind of uses them to, I guess, pay tribute to the work of someone like T.H. White or Beauty and the Beast. I think where it's, I'm not saying it's better than Star Wars, I'm not saying it's better than Conan the Barbarian, but I do think where it stands apart a lot of the 80s fantasy films is that it isn't swallowed alive by 80s sensibilities. I think the storytelling is too swooning at times, and it in that way it sometimes reminds me of almost like a Pal Pressburger film, especially how impressionistic the art direction is. Yeah. I'm not saying it's as good as any Pal and Pressburger film. I'm just saying that <laughs> I see that connection. Now, I enjoy the film. I do have some fond memories of it, watching it when I was younger. But I had not seen it probably since I was nine years old. I think there's kind of an incohesive variety and these very different artistic styles that find their way into the production design that I really enjoy that enjoy there's there is a certain amount of ambition about the whole thing even if that ambition isn't met with quality control (laughs) uh, I do admire it and I do kind of see it as it's not that far away from just being a blatant children's film in I would say how it reduces its themes, but also that it's very much made in a way that refrains from indulging in violence the way that other films of its time did. A lot of Peter Eight's direction is tailored to avoid gruesome set pieces and really the combat in certain scenes. My problem with that, though, is I thought all the fighting sequences were so poorly choreographed. Yeah, I I won't disagree with that. I do think the direction at times, or at least the staging, is not the strongest. Uh, I think in a lot of times there's scenes where in the foreground you have something going on, and in the background you have characters just standing around because they don't have anything to do. There's actually a really apparent example of it during that quicksand sequence, where everyone is arm-to-arm reaching for the guy that's sinking. And Freddie Jones is just right of frame, just standing there watching everybody. (laughs) It's like he's too bot. He can't be bothered to lend a hand. (laughs) It's very committed to a sort of more swashbuckling romantic atmosphere, which I don't think ever takes itself too seriously. But from what I already know about your opinion of this film before beforehand and your snarky commentary, I don't think you feel the same way. I will say about the film. There are moments where the film is very beautifully shot. And there are some um, moments in, within the Black Fortress, which I think are pretty um, pretty surreal and pretty um, pretty neat. The princess in the eye is a neat image that we see a couple times. A couple things like that. The beast is just a mess completely. I mean, that's such a horribly designed villain, especially in the wake of Darth Vader. Such a sloppy costume that we only see. It's animatronic, actually. Oh, is it? Okay, well, it's so sloppy looking, and we only see kind of like in through a, a haze. A lot of the problems are the things like the fight choreography is really poorly done. The staging is really poorly done. 
like I, we were kind of like talking beforehand, and I was saying, you know, how when you make a movie, you come up with a just a general plot, then you kind of flesh out the plot to an outline, then you make a bible for characters and places and religions and things like that, and then you make that into the script. So everything makes sense. Everything feels like it's existed for a while. There's a clear idea of everything. In this film, it does, there, there is no feeling of that. It just seems like the studio is like, we want a, a movie that combines Star Wars and Dungeons and Dragons and some Conan the Barbarian and told the screenwriter just to go at it. And he just sat down and was like, okay, here are the points that I need to hit. Things are just brought up out of nowhere. The glaive, right before he gets the glaive is the first time we hear of the glaive. Oh, you need the glaive. Well, let's go get it. I had no clue it was going to be a boomerang. Because that's essentially what it is. But when it happens, is it not No, amazing? it was like, it, no, he just sticks his hand in some water and he pulls out a rock and it and the rock breaks off and he's got the glaive. The that's glaive it. is the best. I love the glaive. I was like, what glaive. is this? This is so poorly conceived. And then, um, like I mentioned, the changeling. In The Empire Strikes Back, we have a scene where we have the bounty hunters introduced. So we know who they are. When this film, the glaive, not the glaive, Jesus, the changeling is just wandering around in the woods before he meets and kills the the blind guy. But that's so economic. (laughs) But the film's not economic at all, because I mentioned the thing where the old man tells the prince that, oh, we got to go to this guy, the blind guy. He'll tell us where the Black Fortress is. So they go to the blind guy. They're at the blind guy's place. And he's like, no, we got to go to this place to go. We have to go to the Emerald Castle to know how to do this. They hit there, the blind guy dies, and they're like, oh, now we got to go to the web, the Widow of Webs to find this out. And then we get like a 15-minute scene with the Widow of Webs. That's not economical. They could have cut all that out and said, we need to go to the, because the blind guy serves no purpose whatsoever. They just are like just shoving scenes to make it two hours. Well, Star Wars is two hours, so this film has to be two hours too. Or if you can go like, well, Star Wars is two hours. Close Encounters is two hours, Superman the Movie's two hours, Raider Wall Stark is two hours, Conan is two hours. The the general theme is that these popular science fiction fantasy films are two hours. Ours should probably be two hours, too. Yeah, well, the death of the Emerald Seer, which, as you said, leads to the Widow in the Web sequence, which I think is one of the film's strongest moments visually. That is one of, that is one of the best scenes in the movie. It, but it doesn't really contribute much because it's a plot device that eventually is used as character building for Urin's character, but he immediately dies in the following scene. Yeah. I, I mean, I like the changeling sequence in the swamp, but it feels really wasteful once you see what is the direct cause of it. And the the conceit of the sands of time falling yeah. out of his hand and he has to climb down this mountain... <laughs> and you see him holding his hand up in the air the entire time is pretty ridiculous. Well, it's kind of like he's doing like the Black Panther thing the entire time. But like I, I said, thought that's what he was doing. This abandonment of any kind of uh, convincing reality is something that I kind of admire. I find. Well, I have charming. I have another I have another I have another like major problem with this movie. Okay. And why I think the movie seems very lazy. When you see a fantasy science fiction film. I think it should be imaginative. This film isn't imaginative at all. In that the bad wizard, you know, like, when I say bad, I don't mean the bad guy, wizard, the the, the crappy wizard, I can't think of his name, Ergo, Argo. Ergo the Magnificent. The creatures that he turns himself into are 
just normal earth creatures. He turns himself into a puppy. He turns himself into a lion. But that's a fucking weird puppy. Well, the puppy kind of looks like him. Is what I'm assuming they casted a puppy that kind of had the same face. Um, what a performance, by the way, too. And I just hate movies like that. Like, I had that problem with Guardians of the Galaxy, and I think I told you, is uh, Chris Pratt's character starts to count, and they all count with him because they know the English counting system, yet they didn't know what the term raccoon was. So I'm just thinking, well, they should come up with some sort of space counting. Don't use one, two, three, four. Just come up with some sort of, like, nonsense space counting. Mm-hmm. I mean, Star Wars, George Lucas or Lawrence Kasdan or whoever came up with some sort of numbering system that wasn't ours. That shows some creativity and some imagination. Just saying, like, I really want a puppy, and the guy turns himself into a puppy is kind of, I think that's lame. The kid should have said something more, you know, magical than that, and the guy should have turned himself into something more magical. I, I, it's so earthbound, this film. And when I see fantasy, I don't want it to be earthbound. It's not earth. It's not earthbound, Andy. It's crawlbound. Crawl, well, crawl, crawl is a lot like earth. Sure, sure. <laughs> and uh, and I just hate that. I just think when you're doing fantasy, you should do fantasy. Yeah, well, th- I agree. There was one thing I observed while watching this. I I w- was questioning is why is it? And I I this isn't isn't specific to crawl. I think this is in fantasy films in general, but. Why is it in fantasy films where characters already inhibit a world that's filled with magic and the fantastic... Are they surprised? Are they shocked by magic? Yes. The most apparent one was, and this is such a brief fleeting moment, but when Yanir enters that hidden doorway with the green light, and Colin Torquil and the magician himself, Ergo, are just completely stunned. By this revelation. Ergo, the magician was the most shocked. He's a, He can change himself into different animals, and he's shocked that there you can walk through a, a rock. Yes, well, but he is the comedic relief. and what He is the comedic relief. But my other problem is, is that he's the first one that sees the Cyclops. Yes. Everyone seems to know what the Cyclops and the Cyclops' backstory is but him. Where's he been? Well, Colwyn doesn't know. He wasn't that surprised. Well, I think it's suggested that when he arrives, he's not been on Kroll before. Who? The the Cyclops? Ergo. Or Ergo. Well, where did the hell did Ergo come from? He's space, he time-traveled. So that's what we're supposed to get from his first scene. I, I think so, because he comes flying in like a comet. Well, yeah, I get that. I just thought he was trying to really doing a really poor magic trick. Well, they should have established that I come from somewhere else. He says something about where am I, and they say you're on crawl, or... I thought they said you're what forest he was in. Mm. There is a suggestion of... Because, really, how does the Black Fortress... It comes from another galaxy, and yeah. it's never been on crawl before. And one find, one thing I do find confusing is the movie doesn't really... It doesn't indicate a passage of time that would say this fortress has landed and the world has been decimated by its evil. Right, yeah. It just lands and you get the <laughs> the voiceover prophecy, which basically tells you the entire story of the film. So, it, Well, yeah, yeah. After you read that, it's like, why is everybody so freaked out about this? It's all going to be fine in the end. It's They read it in the prophecy. <laughs> but yeah, so it is a little jarring as to if this thing just landed, how are these slayers already such a prominent threat? And then it's also, like, this planet crawl. 
seems like it should be relatively easy to take over because there was what nine bandits there yeah, are a couple that's a good you know, point. i mean I there's really nobody that, that lives on there's no one that lives on this planet well that okay that brings me i think the main issue with the narrative is that the longer the film continues it becomes apparent that peter yates and his staging falls more and more in love with its landscapes rather than oh, the characters. I mean, oh my god. Yeah. Colwyn's climbing of the mountain range to claim the glaive is a great example of him really indulging in visual landscapes, but the the problem I have with that scene is that he's always got the camera in a superior position to the the mountains. So yeah. those mountains are never treated with they're not treated in a way that's allowed allows them to sustain any kind of drama themselves. It's mm-hmm. very pic- picturesque, but it doesn't do anything to, it doesn't really s- depict the struggle that he's facing. Like you watch that sequence and it feels kind of like this whimsical breeze and he doesn't seem to really be struggling to climb the mountain at all. It doesn't no, really seem. Mm-hmm. And to me, I think that moment is supposed to be a rite of passage for the character. Well, nothing's nothing is hard in that scene. Even when he gets the glaive itself, it's just simply putting his oh, hand. In. But it is beautiful. You can't disagree. That shot of the glaive where the the molten is crumbling off is amazing. <laughs> it's beautiful. Maybe, maybe if there was more build up to it, like it was more more of a struggle to get, and it meant more to get it. As is, it's just it's, it was like a very easy task. And um, further with his love the landscapes here that's like another one of my problems is that this is like at one point this was one of the most expensive movies ever made i look at this and i just am just blown away at like what the hell they were spending their money on these landscapes that they have yes they are beautiful and he shoots them pretty well like very picturesque like you said but this doesn't make me think of an alien planet at all it makes me think of you know, mountain ranges on Earth. And that, again, when I said this film feels very Earthbound, this leads to it. It actually made me think of uh, the Masters of the Universe movie. The movie was cheap. You know, that was a low-budget film, Masters of the Universe, and they couldn't afford to shoot a, a film on the planet Eternia. And so that's why they brought it to Earth. Mm. And that's what I always think whenever I see that. I think, well, this, either one, they're not inspired enough to create an alien landscape, or two... They don't have the money, and I know they had the money. But this was in Star Wars. Do all those planets feel like alien landscapes? Yeah, he makes the deserts of Tatooine feel like an alien landscape. Yeah, he does. Okay. The two moons on Tatooine make it, and I know there's two suns on Crawl, but it's obviously just a ripoff of the two moons of. Yeah, and that you only see the binary suns once in the movie. There's just one shot. But those sequences on Tatooine, even though it is just desert, yeah, that does seem like an alien landscape. Now, granted, he didn't. One of the reasons, I think, is that he didn't inhabit Tatooine with, you know, dogs and lions and things that we normally see on Earth. He inhabited with bizarre alien creatures like Jawas and Tusken Raiders and everyone that's in the, you know, the the cantina and all those things. So he inhabited the planet with alien creatures, which I think helps. But it's also, I think he has a clearer eye of what he's doing, George Lucas does, than Peter Yates in this film. Because, like I said, I mean... The uh, the the scene with the two moons where Luke looks at it is an emotional scene. There are no emotional scenes in this movie, and that creates kind of like this is a different world. What do you mean? There's no emotional scenes? 
No, I mean, there's nothing emotional in this movie. Oh, come on. The climax, power is fleeting, love is eternal. You know the most emotional scene in the movie? Or the one that got the that had the greatest gravitas was Liam Neeson's death scene when he was talking. Yes, and actually, my favorite character in the film is Rael the Cyclops. I think yeah. he's great. And I think it's very strange how much the film dedicates to his relationship with Ergo and Titch. Mm -hmm. One sequence that really struck me was where Ergo's life is first saved by Rel, where he throws the spear at the hidden slayer when he's like picking berries or something. Yeah. It's not well edited, but it's very interesting in how it is edited because I, I don't know if Peter Yates had final cut on this or to contribute the result of it, but you hear the slayer screams off camera. Mm -hmm. And then later in the swamp, he does this again where there's that moment where they there's the remaining Slayer and they all surround him and just before they attack he cuts away to Ergo and Rel meeting one another in the foreground with the group obscured by the fog in the background killing the Slayer. And it's just very strange that he chooses not the more visceral of the two options, that he's more interested in the character relationships between these three. I, well, I suppose it's not narratively useful but there's something about that that i really like well i thought the scene where uh the cyclops says he has to stay and ergo says we didn't have enough time i thought that was actually one of the better scenes in the movie yeah what i can't because figure it, out didn't, it didn't it didn't play into the normal tropes of a scene like that i think that we didn't have enough time is i think a very realistic line that i could see two people that like each other. <laughs> that sounds goofy. Yeah, I know. That's uh, the only thing about that moment is I love it, but I laugh every time I see it. Well, because it seems like something more that two people that maybe are having a, a buttoning love relationship would say. <laughs> and and I can't, because David Batley, who plays Ergo, is a comedian, uh -huh. I can't figure out if it is intended to be funny or not. And he's, and he's going Eric Idle. Yeah, it's yeah. such a strange, like... We had no time. <laughs> and Cyclops just looks at him. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's true. But I actually was like, you know, that's a believable line that two people that actually cared about each other that have to split up. Yes. Yeah, well, their their relationship is better developed than the one between Everyone's... Colwyn and Lizette. Oh, by far. I, I would say, though, I do think arguably the best thing about the film, and I do think this is where Peter Yates being the director is most apparent is in the camaraderie among the fellowship of thieves. Just some of the fellowship, because most of the fellow, most of the thieves, we don't even know. We know that there's nine of them, but we know the leader, Liam Neeson, Robbie Coltrane, and the younger one, the other five can just be anybody. But I'm saying that the dynamic between those characters, and then you have the dynamic between Ergo and Titch and Ergo and Rel are, the character moments that come out of those things are my favorite moments in the entire film. Yeah. And I do think that comes from Peter Yates directing a lot of crime ensemble pieces. Mm -hmm. Or breaking away, which that's what that movie's about. It's just interpersonal relationships. There's, you know, this honor among thieves sort of mentality. And I think the movie does convey that. 
doesn't spend enough time with that because it's constantly moving or stopping and then going to Freddie Jones walking around in a web. But uh, <laughs> Freddie Jones is the weirdest actor ever. Well, well, yeah. Well, here's the thing about this movie, and he's part of it, and so is uh, the widow of the web, Francesca uh, Annis. Is that how you say her name? Yeah. Um, about her, well, she, one, she's beautiful when she's not in the old woman makeup. You know, she was, um... She's in Macbeth. Yes, but she's also... Her and Ralph Fiennes were together. For oh, nine years. He left his fiance for her. She's about 20 years his senior. Yeah, well, I mean, in this movie, she's... Well, she doesn't have the old woman makeup on. I mean, she is a gajillion times, like, hotter than the princess, <laughs> which I thought was a mistake. Mm-hmm. But anyway, here's... One of the things about this film, how even though this movie costs forty million dollars, one of the most expensive movies at its of its day, how low rent this film is. Where's Max von Sydow? Where's like Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee? Where's Lawrence Olivier? John Gielgud? Ralph Richards? I mean, these guys were in all of those movies at that time, basically. I mean, Flash Gordon, Star Wars. I mean, all these guys ended up in these things, Clash of the Titans, and yet they didn't get any of them for this. They got Freddie Jones to play the. Uh, Mm-hmm. To play that role, they couldn't have uh, ponied up a little extra cash for uh, Max von Sydow. Yeah, and it, it's it's the wrong choice when once you see how much how physically involved he has to be at certain yeah. times. It's just it's not very convincing, and uh, that is a good point because you look at this film now and you go, oh, it has Liam Neeson, oh, it has Robbie Coltrane. It's there's something about its star power that is only there because of when we reflect back on it and right, see the yeah. careers that these people went on to have. I I found that bizarre as well. And for a film that's so British, I find it strange that Ken Marshall is at the center of it as oh, well. Oh, he's, he's horrendous. I mean, this mm. film suffers from this. He's really bad. I mean, this movie suffers from this. He's the not same any problem. worse than Mark Hamill is in the song. No, Mark, Mark Hamill has... No, Mark Hamill's great because Mark Hamill has that... You believe that he really is just the farmer's son like he isn't particularly good looking he's very average looking everything about him is average and that's what makes his story so great is that he achieves greatness so that means anyone can achieve greatness this guy is too good looking for you to really get behind and he's got that like shit-eating grin that he keeps throwing on his face i mean he's so i mean he's like a sleazeball i just hate him. oh see i think he he's what executives think is like the boy next door kind of idea when he's not. I mean, I agree. He's not the most charismatic or convincing presence in the movie, but I do think he has is able to convey a certain naivete that I think is essential to the character. Oh, no. He's the shits in the movie. And I mean, he's not as bad as say like Nigel Terry is an Excalibur. Who, he plays King Arthur. And I think he's, I mean, I think he's one of the reasons why that movie isn't like a great movie, but He's like Sam Jones and Flash Gordon. And and I I think he's uh at least physically convincing in that yeah, yeah. he is he actually performs all of his own stunt work. No, I agree. I mean he is like physically convincing in that sense, but yeah, I, no. You can't even compare him to Mark Hamill. Yeah, cuz he's better. <laughs> no, he is like infinitely worse. What did you think of the fire mayor sequence? I thought the fire mayor sequence was silly. It was another problem that oh. I had with the movie. It's like how I said the movie's so earthbound. So their mystical horses that they get are just horses. 
and there's some bad firework that's put over top of them. That, I mean, that they're just horses, and that's like my problem. I mean, at least give us like winged horses or something, you know, something somewhat alien or somewhat more fantastic than just horses where you throw some shitty fire special effects over their hooves. But how about the wide shots with the trailing fire in the distance? And especially the one where they're in the sky. I didn't think the sky one looked good. I mean, it is a more grounded take on Pegasus. It is, yeah. Even how they're used narratively, that where they're almost like used as a suggestion that they have to ride them in order to access the realm of the Black Fortress is very similar to how Pegasus is used in accessing Mount Olympus. But if you were making a... Uh... Clash of the Titans, but you were actually doing... You were just doing the Clash of the Titans story, and you're, but you're doing it on, like, modern Earth. And you came up with something like that. Or if you're doing it in the Old West, and they had to get a special mare. Some sort of wild stallion. Yeah, I would go, yeah, that, okay, that's a cool, clever idea. But when I'm watching fantasy, I want to see. I think they should try to make it as fantastic as they could. I I, I really like... The, the fire mare sequence is actually probably my favorite se- sequence in the movie. And I actually really enjoy the wrangling of the fire mares leading them i thought it was way too easy i thought it was way too easy to do it wasn't easy though they couldn't get they couldn't mount them and yeah the the one guy couldn't the one stuntman couldn't mount them but i mean everyone else mounted them okay and maybe this is just me but i'd still find there's something astonishing about watching like a group of clydesdales i think they should have they wanted to show how hard it was to mount these mares and everything they should have cut down on all of the going from place to place with the blind guy and maybe extended that scene wouldn't that have been great if they they go they get the thieves and they're like what do we gotta do you gotta get fire mares so they go get the fire mares and it's like Shoo! and the movie's over in 45 minutes <laughs> you know just extend some of that i mean it didn't seem difficult, didn't say seem difficult at all the fire mare sequence pays off when Rel returns and you get that shot of him alone riding one <laughs> and like his body on the horse, you yeah, got to say what? like, oh, it's worth it then. Do you know what that is? It's a really bad version of the Millennium Falcon showing up to shooting, uh, to help uh, Luke Skywalker blow up the Death Star. Mm. I mean, that's all that was. But the only problem was the Cyclops isn't Harrison Ford and Han Solo. I mean, we legitimately care about Han Solo and we want to see him change. I care about Rel. But Rel's been a good guy since the beginning, so the fact that he shows back up, who uh, cares? I don't know he's that... He's such a good guy. I, I think you don't really know what his motives are when he's following them at first. Maybe at the very first, but by, by that point you certainly do. Yes, but I'm saying his introduction and him following the group for a while, you don't know why he's doing that until he makes his presence known to the members of the party. Until the old one... Set tells the uh, the backstory of uh, the Cyclopses. One gender I do think is really poorly portrayed in this film, and that is the female characters in this movie. Well, there's only two of them. Her, four. Four characters. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, I forgot about the other two. Liam Neeson's wife. Yes, and... Merith. One of, one of his seven wives. And then uh, Vela, the one that was sent by the Beast to corrupt colon yeah and he's so magnificent she just falls in love with him at first sight yeah that that sequence kind of plays out like an episode of montel or something (laughs) (laughs) kind of but i mean again this movie 
this shows the problem when you have exact. I mean, because this movie's obviously they, a movie at this point where they're shoving forty million into it. It's because executives want to recapture the success of Star Wars. And they obviously don't know how to do it. Because the princess. Well, there's a princess in Star Wars. Well, let's put one in here. But they don't understand why Princess Leia is so great. Well, and Princess Leia, even still considering how she finds herself in these damsel in distress uh, situations, she's she's able... Yes, yeah. She takes control of them. Like when they come to save her from the Death Star, she takes control. Like, almost immediately. And I think that's the strength of the Princess Leia character, is that George Lucas, by hiring a Jewish actress in Carrie Fisher, he just essentially made her a Jewish princess. Smart alecky, sassy, take no shit, she's taken over, kind of character. And I think that's why she's such a strong character. It's because she's not a traditional princess, but she's more of a modern, I guess, like I said, Jewish princess stereotype. But that's how she, that's even how she reads her lines, mm. is in that kind of like very modern Jew, you know, stereotypically Jewish cadence. And this, she's just a typical damsel in distress. She can't do shit. <laughs> she's, she's worried all the time. And there's one particular scene uh, when the beast tells Lissa to, I believe, think on it. <laughs> and he's, he basically tells her he'll halt the Slayer's attacks if she agrees to wed him. And she doesn't even even slightly consider making that sacrifice. No, but but Leia sacrifices her. She sacrifices everything to save people. Convention would tell you that he's not going to stay true to his word anyway. But it doesn't portray her as a character with any kind of integrity. You come away with feeling how selfish, at least I did in that moment. Yeah. And Well, I had that same problem with Colin in certain elements. Yes, well, I think that's the point with him, though. No, when towards the end, like when Ergo and the little boy fall in that crevice, and he's like, bring me down, bring me down. And they start wheeling, like, taking him down, but as soon as the thing starts closing, he's like, bring me back up, bring yes, me back up. Yeah, that always, even when I was a kid and I saw that, that struck me as really strange. And when the Cyclops is getting crushed, who's the one that stays? Oh. One, of, one, one of the, uh, oh, yeah, one of the bandits. Colin gives running. <laughs> well, yes, that that is, I would say, ultimately the problem with Colin as a character and where Ken Russell's performance fails is that he doesn't. Ken I wish it was Ken Russell. Oh, Ken... <laughs> Ken Marshall's performance fails in that it doesn't express any kind of character growth, and I think the intention is that at the start of the film he's supposed to be this very entitled, naive prince who's never really had to earn his stripes in any way. And this journey across Kroll is essentially, you know, from boyhood to manhood. But the problem is, is that the characterization, the performance, his actions in certain moments, it's all very static. There there never is a sense of great growth. And as much as I love the glaive, I think the glaive is the greatest weapon ever put to film. The employing of that weapon, it takes the responsibility of defeating the beast out of his hand, basically. He doesn't really have to confront that enemy himself. Well, another thing about Colin that I have a problem with is that um, he has these bandits go with him. And pretty much all the bandits die except for Torkel and the, and the young one. We never 
express even when Liam Neeson dies, and you can see how like Torkel is very upset about Liam Neeson dying. You never get a sense that Colin is like, you know, I'm sorry that I put your all of your friends through this and that you're losing everyone you know because of this journey for me. You never get a scene like that. You never get a sense that he's even thinking that. It's just like, eh, another good one's dead. We gotta go. But you also don't really get that from the thieves themselves. Robbie Coltrane no, when, is the only one that... No, when Liam Neeson dies and he gives his little speech about his wife and things like that, Torkoal's face, you can... It is a moment of, I'm losing, like, my best friend. Yes. And his... I, I suppose his defeated like, line reading. Yeah, and Colin's like, let's go. <laughs> Time's a waste. <laughs> we gotta get my wife. We can forget about your friend <laughs> for a moment. Yeah, there's never any real catharsis. I would say even the death of Rel, his arrival at the Black Fortress, it 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 begins as like this very heroic moment of and deciding that it's better to help these people and suffer the most painful death than his, you know, to each his fate, as they all say in the film. But I don't know if it's because the the walls are made of styrofoam or something, but <laughs> like they don't. The way that's whole that whole scene's photographed is it doesn't emphasize that sacrifice no, at all. There's never any real reflection from anybody after one of these character ha- characters have died. I guess well, the, the ultimate one is the one you mentioned with Torquil, which is maybe three seconds of screen time. But that's and that's the problem where we have a movie where a movie that spends like forty minutes getting to the getting to the web. And we waste all these these moments that we don't need where we could have spent them on character development <laughs> reflection of on the deaths the scene with the mares a little longer and making it seem a little more difficult to get making it harder to get the glaive these things i mean like the bigger moments should have had more time to develop than they currently do and but we're given like 40 minutes of just wandering around in the woods oh but what a glorious woods it is <laughs> And and did you know that the prince Princess Lisa or Lisa or her name? She was dubbed. Yes. Can you imagine how bad Lisette Anthony's voice has to be? Uh, I've, I've heard that she's in the with? she's in the documentary. Her voice sounds is fine. She, why did they dub it? That is the voice that they have is horrendous in the movie. I read something about this. She has a very feminine voice. Oh wow, and she's a female. That's that yes, and I think she's dubbed. By an American actress, I believe. Who does a very stilted, monotone line reading. Yes, and I think it's supposed to give her a stronger presence, almost. Well, she's certainly, it, cer- it certainly doesn't. The dubbing is very obvious. I mean, you wouldn't even have to read that to notice it. No. It's just clear that that voice is not that actress's. But I, I was going back to the female character's point. And why is she in a white wedding dress that you would wear on Earth? Because she was getting married. They had the fire marriage. And why is she just wearing just the normal everyday? Yeah, yeah. Especially considering the uh, the armor that the soldiers of her kingdom don. But with the Widow of the Web, you know, that's another instance of a character who... <laughs> Here's this woman <laughs> who basically entire life has been waiting for someone... <laughs> Waiting for a man. This crusty old bastard. <laughs> never shows up. And then, of course, she's this old, decrepit woman. But when Freddie Jones so- shows up for her help, 
she becomes young and beautiful again. She becomes yeah, she becomes Esquire magazine's like sexiest woman alive or whatever they have. But he's still he's still your crusty old man. And also what's so amusing to me about that scene is that because you know She also sacrifices herself. Yes. But because you know Yuren's motivations, it plays like he's manipulating her. Oh yeah, yeah. To get what he needs so that this journey can continue. <laughs> He's like, the princess has the same name as you. My name? The young Lisa? All right. Let's do it. Every female character in the film is in service of a male. Even Liam Neeson's wife, which yeah. she's only showing up because the men need food. So get the woman in here to help with the cooking. Same thing with uh, the female character that attempts to kill Colwyn. She's just in service of the beast. But she flips right away as soon as she sees Colin. For that one hour, I loved you. How about the... Now, you have to admit this. Greatest pair of thieves ever put to film. The two who <laughs> who fight with the whips. <laughs> what I love about the whips, though, it's like they receive no training with the whips. Like, you hear, you hear the sound effect, but the whip is so limp, limpless through the whole thing. And it's clear it's not working. Yeah. These two guys are whipping the Slayer in the swamp, and just nothing is happening. <laughs> I, I will say that the the Slayer's deaths, I love those. With the parasite crawling out of the their alien helmet. Thing. Well, it made me think of, like, Starship Troopers kind of thing. Yeah. I like how their swords, they have, like, traditional swords. But when they clang together, like, lasers shoot out of them. Mm -hmm. The one thing about that is... You introduce this laser gun. Why do they ever go to the swords? When they capture uh, Princess Lissa, they shoot the two guards, and then they engage in sword combat <laughs> with the other two. Why not just shoot the other two and get it over with? Well, because it's so perfunctory. Like the, people like the sword fighting scene in Star Wars. <laughs> when they miss, there's a ricochet sound. Did you notice that? No, I didn't. Every time they miss, you hear... Bing, bing, like, just like a ricochet sound that you would hear from, like, in the Old West. Cool. This is further with my thing where I said earlier, Peter Yates. I don't care what he says in that making of, which was put together by the studio. What's he supposed to say? The same year, from the same studio, he makes a movie called The Dresser, which ended up, you know, he was nominated for Best Director at the Oscars for and things like that. It's about a Shakespearean theater group. I bet he was able to do The Dresser because he did Kroll. Both Columbia Pictures, both the same year. The dresser came out at the end of the year. It was, you do Kroll, we'll let you do your Shakespeare theater group movie. Apart from that documentary, I haven't been able to read any information regarding his undertaking of the film. When you look at it today, knowing everything that precedes it and succeeds it in his body of work, it is very strange to know what motivated him to direct this particular film. Because it's the only time he, he ventured into fantasy and science fiction as well. And in comparison to the other films he directed, its technicality is very unusual in the sense that when you look at something like Bullet, that's a very languid, almost whispered thriller. The same thing with The Friends in Eddie Coyle. But more so, it's how those two films are edited. With Crawl, it's almost like an anti-Peter Yates film in that his cutting is not ep economic in the way that I'm familiar with, 
and the motivation of his cuts is entirely constructed around the attempting to mask the low quality of some of the effects work and even just technical mistakes. It's not cutting it into the narrative, it's cutting around it, whereas I've always found in his films, like I said, to be very economically edited so that they're entirely driven, not by plot, but by story, and he definitely struggles to maintain that, and I just don't know if that gets lost in, I'm sure, what was a very daunting production, which, again, like you mentioned earlier, with where are they spending the money, it's a very valid question. Why were it that there was like something like 23 sets built for this movie? Yeah. I, I'd really like to see the film on DVD, just because the Blu-ray transfer is horrendous. <laughs> and I almost think it may highlight flaws in the blue screen work. Yeah, well, the blue screen work is horrendously bad in some parts. Some of the set backdrops. There's one of the sequences where they're running across the bridge in the Black Fortress. There's never an attempt to kind of um, mask the fact that behind this bridge structure is just a wall. Yeah. I mean, it's really noticeable because you can see the texture of the wall and how it's separate from the rest of the background. But it makes me reconsider what I guess I've labeled him as in terms of being someone who was primarily interested in a certain kind of, I guess, urban realism. Maybe with this film and your, I don't know The Dresser and I don't know... Breaking Away? Yeah, I don't know those films. But oh, I almost, Breaking Away. Breaking Away is just a fantastic movie. But it it makes me wonder if he's someone kind of similar to Richard Lester in a way. He's not the filmmaker that Richard Lester is, no, at least yeah. not in consistency. But... I guess just kind of his place in when you look at British cinema in the sense that his films in some ways I guess are kind of contrary to what those sensibilities were at the time. And I think that's what's strange about Crawl in that Crawl seems to fit right into those sensibilities. But when you look at his Hollywood work, what I've read about the B pictures he made at the start of his career, he was someone that was much more akin to filmmakers like Michael Winner and Richard Lester. And mm-hmm. I just wonder if going to Hollywood, if that he evolved out of that. But doing a movie like Kroll amidst all these other films, it that does remind me of something that Richard Lester would kind of do. I'm making a Three Musketeer film, only that clearly still has his sensibility. I don't yeah. see Peter Yates's sensibility in Kroll so much. No, not at all. Well, even like something like Superman 2 and Superman 3, I think the downfall of those movies is that... There is no downfall in Superman 3. Is that Richard Lester is directing them, and I don't, and I don't think he's the right guy for those movies, because he adds such a heavy layer of slapstick to those films. Well, I think that's the best thing about those movies. <laughs> like the opening scene in Superman 3, I think is well constructed, but I just don't think it really fits in a Superman movie. Well, not your vision of the Superman movie. <laughs> Crawl's a mess from an <laughs> editing perspective. Like, I don't know how familiar you are with different editing techniques. You know, most traditional films, they adopt what's been defined as, like, analytical editing, yeah. which is the establishing shot, 
close-up, cutaway, your very basic way of entering and exiting a scene. Most of Crawl is analytical editing. But I think the problem is, because it has to do so much cutting around, because it's trying to preserve the authenticity of the world, scenes start out analytically and then they evolve into constructive editing, which is the like Kuleshov effect, the idea of like the power of suggestion in connecting disjointed images. And I think it I'm I'm saying it because I think it makes it problematic in maintaining the continuity of a scene. There's a lot of scenes in Crawl where delineating the geography between where characters are in a space because he doesn't he doesn't always begin a scene by laying out the space. A lot of times he cuts to a scene that begins on a character then cuts to a character. It's becomes very disorienting throughout the entire movie. The widow in the web sequence is a good example of it because it establishes his relationship to that spider, but then as he gets closer to the the nest, suddenly where the spider fucking is and where he is becomes very confusing. And that, that there's no tension there because you have no, no sense. You have, yeah. You're so disoriented in terms of where is the spider descending in relationship to Freddie Jones. And the way that that scene, the tension of that pays off is so deflating and just that, oh, he gets there. <laughs> like, that's it. <laughs> and then there's nothing for the spider to do. I f- I feel like I've somehow you've you've manipulated me into reacting negatively <laughs> towards crawl. I don't know how this is happening because despite all of its major major issues, I'm not going to call crawl a great movie or even a movie that people need to see, but I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of fantasy films or even science fiction. Yeah. But there's something about the spirit of it that I really appreciate. I, like I mentioned earlier, I do really like all the different textures, the color palettes, constantly trying to bridge the gap between the two genres with graphic elements that are interesting. They don't feel organic to the film at all. Uh, I would say the whole design of the Black Fortress from a distance looks kind of organic, but then when they actually are climbing it, it suddenly looks like an Art Deco building. Which, in this, like, green landscape is just very jarring. But I I guess that inconsistency is something that I really... Kind of astonishing within the context of a blockbuster. I'm sure a lot of people feel it's irresponsible (laughs) of a movie that was made for $50 million that you can't figure out why it was made that way. (laughs) You know, somehow, I don't know, I appreciate how it looks like a ten million dollar movie on a forty million you know million dollar budget. Where, where stars is a ten million dollar movie that looks like a forty million dollar movie. Yes, and like I said, I actually really enjoy the characters. Rel is like one of my favorite fantasy characters. I wish he had his own film. Well, he he, he does Rel in the city. It's like Sex in the City, but oh, it's got really? Rel in it. Yeah, yeah. They should have done like a Predator Two scenario. Where, like, the Black Fortress lands in Compton. <laughs> I wouldn't mind seeing Rel in a Die Hard-like movie. 
they beat the beast and everything. So, but the Black Fortress is still there. So they're throwing like a Christmas party there. Yes. And uh, Rel gets <laughs> he gets separated on a different floor at one point, and terrorists take over, and it's Rel against all the terrorists. You could get lots of good puns, like one eye puns out of that. I bet. I got my eye on you. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on the potential subtext that the beast is a sort of a metaphor for Margaret Thatcher? I didn't even know that was a possibility. I don't know that it is. I'm... Oh, you made that up. <laughs> Similar features. And she did live in the Black Fortress. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I do agree that the beast—it's a mess. There is no character for the beast. But that's kind of what's great about it. You don't know what this thing is. I will actually say the physical manifestation at the end is disappointing because there's a large portion of the film where he almost feels like the nothingness or something in the never-ending story where he's constantly taking these different shapes yeah. on film. And you don't you don't really understand the capability, I guess, of his power. And th- And that is why he demonstrates such great power throughout the movie that it makes the climax all the more kind of befuddling in the sense how easy Colwyn dispatches him. I got a question for you, okay? Yes. Because this actually has to do with the glaive. Now, the old one keeps telling Colwyn, hey, you know, you can only use the glaive once, so be smart when you use it. He uses it like three times. Does that mean that you can only use it in one location, but you can use it over and over in this one location? I guess so, or one scenario. I mean, eventually the clave does not come back to him. Right, because it gets stuck in the, the belly of the beast. Yes, but it it's also, it's it's now hidden for the next messiah to be dis- discover right. it. But, but, but the thing is, it's like... It's it does not... look like Jesus, I just realized that. <laughs> he uses the clave to open a door, to create a door. To save the princess. Then he uses the glaive to dispatch of some, you know, guards. And then he uses the glaive on the beast. That's not the same thing. No, but Freddie Jones does say you need to get it warmed up. (laughs) So he warms it up by... I would think warming it up would be using it on the guards first. Well, they're not there. I know, they should have hit the guards first. He said you gotta warm it up by cutting through a wall. I, I did think it was funny because, you know, I'd never seen this before. And, you know, the old one just keeps saying, you know, use the glaive once. You can only use it once. You can only use it once. And I'm thinking, oh, he's going to use this glaive to beat the beast. And then he shows up and uses the glaive to cut a door out. I'm like, so he went to get this thing just to make a door? And then it comes back to him and he uses it again and again. I'm like, okay, so Freddie Jones, this whole thing where it's like you can only use it once isn't true. You can use it, like, over and over again until the thing that you got it for is done. All right, all right. I think you're you're kind of picking on the glaive a little bit here. Uh, <laughs> but that's the problem with the glaive. You can only use it once, but no, he uses it three times. Yes. In a way, I kind of just wish the glaive was used all the time. It would make yeah. everything so much easier. And so then what he ultimately uses it for in the end is sort of disappointing. But the mere visual conception of the glaive, the idea behind the glaive, this bejeweled like boomerang. Guillotine. It's like the flying guillotine in the Master of the Flying Guillotine movie. Is magnificent. <laughs> bejeweled there's nothing, boomerang in, with there's, there's not a, a visual idea in any Star Wars movie 
that even touches it's a, the glaive. It's a, it's a Swiss Army glaive because of little knives on it. That would be cool if each blade was like, here's a corkscrew. And, and like a toothpick and like a little pair of scissors and things like that. You know it would have been better if it was the glaive, but when he went to get it, it was a traditional Swiss Army knife, which shows that this takes place on Earth but in the far future. Because everything that we were has been wiped out, except for this one Swiss Army knife. It's kind of like a Planet of the Apes scenario. We don't know if this came before us or after us. It could be happening right now. It could be happening. Oh, okay. Some, somewhere in the galaxy, this could be happening right now. Time is static, Andy. It's just a repetition of events. There is no before. There is no now. There is no after. It's all just... It's just crawl. It just is crawl. Yes. It's all just crawl. And that is really what the glaive is all about. <laughs> it's all just crawl. So, you know, this movie only made $16 million. It flopped hard at the box office. They were working on a... They were conceiving a sequel. Crawl 2 the next day? Like Porky's 2 the next day? Um, I would love to have been that executive that, that spearheaded Crawl. What it was like for him coming in on Monday. Well, it comes out in 83, which is the same year as Jedi. Yep. I'm not sure what else, but I don't know that it ever really had a fighting chance. I just don't think Peter Yates' sensibility is tailored for that kind of a movie. And I do think that's the interesting thing about it and the problem with it is just Mm -hmm. that it doesn't play like an epic blockbuster. Here are the highest grossing films of 1983. Number one, Return of the Jedi. Two Terms of Endearment, three Flashdance, four Trading Places, five War Games, six Octopussy, seven Sudden Impact, eight Staying Alive, nine Mr. Mom, ten Risky Business. When you think about, if you looked at a gross list today, yeah, don't the films on that list feel so small in comparison? The fact that a movie like Mr. Mom can be in except for Return of the except for Return of the yes. Jedi. I mean, we got Return of the Jedi. We have a movie like War Games and a, and two franchise films other than Star Wars with, you know, the James Bond and Dirty Harry movies. But Terms of Endearment being the second highest grossing film. Right. I mean, it wouldn't be second highest grossing film, but these films, these Oscar bait films do do well. I mean, American Hustle did really well. Uh, Silver Linings Playbook did well. Wolf of Wall Street did really well. Oscar bait films typically do well. King Speak made over $100 million. Mm. And Trading Places, that has Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. That would be like, you know, a hangover movie or something. I think Mr. Mom is the one that really sticks out. As the one that's kind of like odd that it made that much money. It's Keaton. It is. People love Michael Keaton and Terry Garr. Oh, I wanted to mention the opening shot where they're in space and the... Black Fortress goes by us, yes. just like like an Imperial cruiser from Star Wars. I mean, could they have devised of an opening that was <laughs> more of a ripoff of Star Wars than that? <laughs> Unless they actually had an Imperial cruiser go by. <laughs> that would have been good. <laughs> it was like this big mountain fortress and a little pebble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, like, oh my god, this what. They're just stealing the first scene from Star Wars. The first, the opening shot of every Star Wars movie is this. I will say that the um, the montage that follows that lays the land out for you, yeah, it feels very reminiscent of what 
Peter Jackson later does in Lord of the Rings with like the horde of slayers, like they in their own way, because they're silhouetted, almost look like orcs and this giant fortress. Yeah, what's strange said is I did see a lot of the Lord of the Rings movies in this. Mm-hmm. Which I find very bizarre that I, I guess his biggest influence on the Lord of the Rings movies was Crawl. I love it. Well, this was during, this was the height, fantasy was at its, at its highest point. But I even wonder if the failure of Crawl, it comes out in 83, which is early in the decade, but a lot of iconic films preceded this. You know, Conan, Dragon Slayer, uh, Star Wars, Flash Gordon. So I almost wonder if there was, I mean, I know there's some fantasy that's successful after the fact, but I almost wonder if people were kind of starting to get a little tired. I think they were getting, like, the mainstream was getting tired of it. Not necessarily your fantasy fanatics, but your mainstream was. Because, I mean, this flops, Conan the Destroyer, which was 84, flops. Uh, Labyrinth, which was the next year, flopped. I mean, you have a lot of, like, fantasy films, I guess, coming after a Return of the Jedi that just flop hard. And yet they kept making them. Well, that's the thing about, you know, studio executives. They'll keep hitting the well until someone finally says, this isn't working at all. So they'll make, you know, they'll they'll make six more movies that flop before someone finally says, I don't think anyone wants to see these anymore. And, and they're also constantly waiting for the next thing. Mm-hmm. Because I've said before, I don't think I've ever said it on here, but I've said it I, I have been known to say it, that executives are typically the least creative people that are in the entertainment industry. So I, I just don't believe that they can come up with a new trend. They just wait for a new trend to happen. So they'll just continue continually make flops because this at one time was a hot trend until they can find the new, the new trend that's easy to point out. But do you think that happens today? Yeah, I still think that happens today. Because it doesn't seem like most of these big blockbuster movies, they don't really seem to flop. Some of them do. I mean, Battleship flopped. The John Carter film flopped. That, yeah, there's a good example. John Carter, I haven't seen it, but I'm from what I gather, you could probably draw some comparisons to Crawl with that movie. I saw John Carter, and um, it definitely wasn't what I hoped it was going to be, because, you know, it's based on the John Carter of Mars series, you know, the Princess of Mars series of books. Yes. So I was really excited about it. I've always wanted to see a Princess of Mars film, and it's not what I would have, not exactly what I wanted, but I didn't think it was horrible, and I thought they got some things right. They got some things horribly wrong. Um, but I can't, I can't figure out why this one bombed and why so many of the other really terrible ones didn't bomb. I do think we're now in in a in a society that doesn't want to see things from hundreds of years ago. And what I mean by that is that John Carter is a Civil War veteran. I think that immediately turns people off. Like as much as I love, say, like the Universal monster movies, I don't think you could make Victorian era horror films today that make money. I think pe- that would turn off the general audience. Well, with that recent news, it doesn't seem Universal's going that direction. Going to go that direction anyway. And I think they think the same thing, that people just don't want to see Victorian era things. 
So I think that's a problem in itself. But Hammer right now seems to be attempting. They're attempting it. They succeeded with Woman in Black, but I I think the star power of Daniel Radcliffe had a lot to do with that. And the fact that it was a good movie. Sure. If you would have put the guy that played Ron in the movie instead, it wouldn't have worked. I mean, it probably still would have been an okay movie, but I don't think it would have made the money it made. I just don't think Victorian era things were going to work anymore for genre films. So I think that's why, say, John Carter flopped and, say, something just as worse, didn't it? So, yeah, blockbusters still flop. There's just not as many blockbusters that flop. And, uh, and I do think that's a lot of the studios have made, made that happen. I think they've gone out of their way to make every blockbuster seem like this is a movie you cannot miss. You just can't miss it. And you know what? Speaking of John Carter, Battleship, and Lone Ranger, all three of those films had negative publicity before they came out, mm-hmm. dealing with their costs and production overrun and things like that. And with the internet now, I think that stuff is a little more um, accessible than it would have been in the past. And so, with say something like Lone Ranger, Disney couldn't make this out to be, this movie is awesome, you have to see this, because there was so much negative publicity before the film came out. Mm-hmm. Whereas something that is really shitty, that doesn't have production problems, like say the new Transformers, that move, those movies are just made. There are no production problems with those films. They're just well, made. people die. <laughs> well, yeah, I know that, but that's I know I understand that. But you know what I'm trying to say. Yes. So there is no negative publicity when they come out. This you can go look how awesome this stuff is. This is awesome. You're gonna love it because there isn't the pre-existing negative publicity around surrounding the film. And all you need really is like a one huge weekend, and you're good. And, you know, a movie like Pacific Rim, that was kind of a flop here. It did well overseas, well enough that they're making a sequel, but um, it kind of flopped here. Mm-hmm. It only did, like, a little over $100 million here, which it needed to do a lot more than that. And I think a lot of that wasn't necessarily negative reaction, but I think a lot of people thought it looked stupid. And they thought correct. Well, they thought incredibly wrong, but, I mean, that movie is a lot of fun. One of, one of the things I love about that movie, Pacific Rim, probably the thing I love more most about Pacific Rim. Guy loves Pacific Rim, but hates Crawl. Crawl, because Crawl's so stupid, is that Pacific Rim is all about working together. A unity of man. And I, re- and I like that message. I mean, I don't, I don't know, I just really like Whatever. that. Whatever. And that is what that film's about. Because on the audio commentary track, Guillermo del Toro even says, that's what this film's about. <laughs> And I think that's an, e- an easily to point out theme of that film is the idea of working together. Last thing I wanted to say, I've mentioned this short making of documentary, which I'll post in the show notes. It's available on YouTube. Guess who narrates the documentary? Sir Ralph Richardson. No. George Lucas. No. Howard Cunningham. Ron Howard? Tom Bosley himself. Oh, I was thinking, because he's Richie Cunningham. What's Tom Bo- Why is Tom Bosley doing it? Because he's the ultimate curlateer. Does he say that? <laughs> I love curl. <laughs> I saw, I saw, I saw a, a print of it the other day. Yes. It is, it is him a recording a voiceover in his kitchen and his wife's like yelling at him in the background. Oh my god, he Hi. is Howard, he is Howard Cunningham. 
Isn't that no, I'm, okay. no, I'm kidding. No. Oh my god, I was about to. I was gonna say Happy Days isn't even from Universal or Columbia. Y'all, it is from Columbia, isn't it? Because I was thinking this movie was from Universal for a second. Doesn't seem to have helped it financially, though. His well, Tom Bosley. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't. Oh, he come on, he doesn't draw a crowd. Or are you kidding? by 1983? He's at the height of his powers. What are you talking about? <laughs> Happy Days was canceled in '84. Some say that it was him appearing in this making of documentary for Crawl is what got Happy Days canceled. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it drew people away. It drew people away. They're like, ugh. He's associated with Crawl. I don't want to listen to him spout out fatherly advice anymore. He should have played um, Tyrion, the old one. Oh, he should have played Colwyn. <laughs> that would be pretty interesting if Ton Bosley played the young prince, that the old one has to come. He'd be older than the old one. No, they should have done. Henry Winkler is Colin. Oh, God. Tom Bosley is the young one. Marion Ross as the Widow of the Web. Anson Williams as Ergo. Donnie Most as the Cyclops. I mean, just go down the line. Ron Howard should be in there as the little kid, even though it would be an adult. Pat Marita should have been Oracle. Get Get the night shift crew. Shelley Long as the princess. Whoa! Whoa! I can't stand Ron Howard, but this should have been a dry run for Willow. <laughs> I don't like Ron Howard the director. I like Ron Howard the person. I like Ron Howard the actor on the Indy Griffith show. Was Don Knotts dead by now? No. By 83? No? No. Ooh, he should have been the Emerald Seer. I got myself an emerald right here. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a good one. Yeah, I don't know. He would have had one bullet in a pocket. Can you imagine a film where you see Don Knotts kill Don Knotts? <laughs> I call that my dreams. That happens in my nightmares. No, Don, watch out. How many jive turkeys are you giving Crawl, Andy? Uh, one. It does make me reevaluate my star ratings for Dogs in Space, though, because I gave, originally gave Dogs in Space one and a half. Yeah, you're going to tell me you're going to rewatch Dogs in Space no, before you so have Crawl. No, so I'm going to have to drop Dogs in Space to like a half of a star. I'm giving it four and a half. <laughs> Are you really? Oh, yeah. I got Crawl fever. It's a fever, all right. I'm not a critic, so I don't care. <laughs> Some movies are just, like, hard to rate because you do like them, even though they're sacks of shit. <laughs> it's not a sack of shit, though. Oh, it is. It's a sack of rubies. <laughs> that turn into stones when you take them outside. Oh, another mo- great moment. What a reveal. <laughs> when he opens it up, no. And his if you face? Are, if you are far-sighted. Are you talking about when uh, the face of the uh, of the blind guy, after he overhears? Because he's got... Really good hearing. <laughs> I like the face of the blind guy when he's getting choked out. <laughs> How can you give Crawl four and a half? I don't know, what do you give Big Trouble in Little China? Five. So it's only half of a star better. <laughs> well, but that's a big half star, Andy. I mean, Big Trouble in Little China is actually a well-made movie. And it's legitimately funny. So is this. Well, that, this one's not trying to be funny. It's just is. Oh, yeah, it is. We had no time. <laughs> that really should have been the tagline of Kroll. <laughs> yeah, when it, when it bombed. We had no time. So, Andy, what are we looking at next episode? Next episode, 
We'll be looking at Bob Clark's 1974 seminal holiday slasher film, Black Christmas. So you can hear Andy on the Stephen Andy Me Batman podcast and follow him on Letterboxd, where I can be found as well. Film Jive can be reached at filmjive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. Please send all your thoughts and feedback to filmjive at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Film Jive podcast. Please tune in next episode, and until next time, keep on jiving.